Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is November 24th, 2020, and Steve Milbury, Vice President Investment and Trade at Opportunities New Brunswick, joins me to provide an update on the craft of economic development in the 2020s. This is somewhat of an inside baseball discussion as we get very granular and talk about how the internet is changing economic development and how investment lead generation services are getting more sophisticated these days. A lot has changed in the past 25 years since I started as a young graduate working to help attract companies to New Brunswick. After the conversation with Steve, I realized that while much has changed, the fundamentals remain in place. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have any questions, drop me a note via LinkedIn or Twitter. If you would like to have a specific topic covered on Growing Pains, just let me know. Thanks again for listening. So I'd like to introduce you to Steve Milbury, Vice President of Investment and Trade at Opportunities New Brunswick. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, David. How are you? Good. So I'm very excited about our conversation today. This is a little bit of an inside baseball conversation. We're going to talk about how economic development has changed or not changed over the past 30 years since I started in the early 1990s. But before we get into the questions, why don't you tell our listeners your backstory? So how did you get started? How did you end up working with uh, Opportunities New Brunswick in the role of Vice President Investment and Trade? So a little bit of a long story. Uh, grew up in Fredericton, uh, went to school, left Fredericton after uh, starting my career in sales, moved to Alberta where a lot of us did go back in, in the mid 90s. Spent a great deal of time there and, and honing my skill in terms of being uh, a manager, uh, sales, that sort of thing, and eventually ended up in Vancouver. And shortly after being and arriving in Vancouver, Actually, it's, it's funny because, uh, David, you might have uh, had something to do with this, but uh, or maybe not. But if you recall, Bernard Lord at the time was doing a repatriation tour across Canada. And uh, as a matter of fact, myself and a few other New Brunswickers who I ran into at this event in downtown Vancouver were, were there. And uh, it was shortly after that I, I reached out to my family back home and I said, how are things there? And they said, you should come back home. So... It was two years in Vancouver, and then in 2005, 2006, I, I came back to New Brunswick. So it was, a, it was a good move. It was a tough move because I had gained a lot of momentum in my career, but it eventually obviously brought me back here. So then I, I came back home and spent a number of years again uh, working in the sales and sales management, general management uh, areas. And it was either in software, selling throughout North America or into the Caribbean. Uh, throughout U.S. and multiple jurisdictions on the West Coast, East Coast. And uh, one day I saw this ad in the newspaper that they were looking for people to sell the province. So I thought, that sounds like fun. That sounds like something I can get behind. And the personality that I have is somebody who, who's uh, passionate about things, wants to see the province that I love succeed. I left here and it was... Uh, not a fun experience when I left. It was the best thing I could have ever done, but it was very sad when I left. I didn't want to leave. So it was uh, something that I felt strongly about. And 
Back in 2012, I joined Invest in Brunswick. And then shortly after two years of being with Invest in Brunswick, we transitioned to OMB, which is where we are here today. So happy to be here. It's a, it's, it's a great opportunity. Tells a neat, neat backstory. I, I do remember Bernard Lord's little tour across Canada or more than one to try and convince people to move back. I remember he was lampooned a bit for that because a lot of the people he was trying to woo were professionals like yourself, but a lot of the jobs on offer were entry level call center jobs and that type of thing. So there was a little bit of lampooning, but it's good to see at least one professional was able to find their way back because of uh, uh, Bernard Lord's premier Lord's uh, tour across the Canada. Now I understand he brought moosehead beer and lobsters and stuff with him. Do you remember the food? Yeah, I mean, it was all New Brunswick-based stuff, so you're absolutely right. It was Moosehead beer, there was blueberries, there was maple syrup, there was fish, smoked uh, smoked fish, smoked salmon. Uh, there was all kinds of that sort of thing. Um, but I also say I'm not the only one he brought back because there was another gentleman who uh, was living in Vancouver at the time working for Microsoft, and he came back to uh, actually New Brunswick, and he was one of the founders of a small company called Radiant 6. So you can also you can also claim a little bit of success there too for having brought back a, an entrepreneur who saw some real value in a startup and turned it into something. So I never saw that connect. I never knew that connection. That's great. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, um, that didn't work out so well for me. But well, I shouldn't say that too much. But. Uh, you're doing what you love. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah. That's what's yeah. important. So, yeah, as I said, I'm very excited about our conversation today because a lot of our listeners are younger folks in economic development. They they uh, wouldn't necessarily remember, say, the, the 90s or maybe even the early 2000s. So I'm just trying to give folks a sense of what has changed or what hasn't changed uh, in the last 25 years. So I think you're ideally positioned to help us figure that out because you're on the front lines of it today. And plus you do have some history going back into the early two thousands. Um, when I started in the early 1990s under the McKenna, uh, economic development team, there was a real focus on trying to attract industry to the province. So I call that foreign direct investment, but really most of that investment was national. It was coming out of, out of, out of Toronto. Um, so the idea was you had a lot of, you know, uh, young people coming into the workforce, they didn't have a lot of options, so they would leave, similar to your backstory. And the idea was, could we actually bring companies here that would employ them in in good jobs? You know, a um, um, lot of discussion about whether or not the jobs we did bring were particularly good, but they did provide a, a starting point for a lot of people. And a lot of them did turn out to be really good jobs, right, in terms of if you're a senior person with ExxonMobil or you're a senior person with RBC or, or otherwise. So where is where is the focus these days? Are you still out hustling firms, trying to attract industry to the province, uh, or have you shifted more toward um, startups or export development or some other type of activity? So I would say that uh, we continue to focus on attracting firms. So. The way we do this is in a very proactive approach. So when we, it's funny because we'll travel around the world, uh, very specific jurisdictions that we think that we can attract talent or we can attract companies or investment. And we often hear how we operate much differently than, than other jurisdictions would like Ontario or Quebec, um, BC, Alberta sort of thing. And what we always hear is, is that uh, we're far more aggressive in our approach. We're far more proactive. 
and we're also reaching out to company specific. So we're very similar, I, I would say, to what I've heard uh, from yourself and others uh, back in the old days where you would go and you'd sit down in front of the CEO of Air Canada and you'd say, come to New Brunswick. We do exactly the same sorts of things. And as a matter of fact, we leverage technology. The technology that we have today actually gives us better access to some of these leaders within these large companies. So we're making sure that we're leveraging those tools to get access to those leaders. Um, that said is what's really great about going back to the nineties is, is that there was this foundational piece that was really created that has enabled us to continue attracting the companies like the Exxon Mobiles, the RBCs, TDs, et cetera, because the work that was put in back then was all about creating the foundational piece of the infrastructure, which was the telco at the time and building that out. So that enabled these companies to come. So what we've done is we've essentially reaped the benefit over the last 30 years of that work that was done. Now I would say we're at a, we're at a transition point. We've, we've had this infrastructure that was above and beyond most other jurisdictions. And, and now we're at a point where, um, we need to continue by investing in that technology so that we can continue to be leaders and show leadership. So the way we do things is really not much different. We're going out, we're talking directly to CEOs of major corporations and asking them to come and invest in our product. So I want to, I want to push a little bit on that because I remember in the, again, in the old days, a lot of that sort of spade work was done by the premier himself. In other words, the premier would call, the CEO of a company and say, I want to send in my Cracker Jack team. I want to send in my Steve Milbury um, to help you understand the value of locating in New Brunswick. Are you saying it's easier today for staff at ONB to actually get into those senior management roles or those senior positions in corporations? You don't need the premier anymore, or does the premier still play that opening door role. Uh, nobody's McKenna, of course, nobody would want to be McKenna necessarily. But what I guess what I'm asking you is, are you still able, are you able to open those doors in a way that, um, you know, you can have meaningful discussions with senior managers in Toronto or elsewhere? I would say that it's, it's a little bit of all of that. So, uh, however, though, the the most of our, our, our interactions and proactive involvement in reaching out to their companies is by us. Um, we uh, see doors being opened by our business development executives. And I can't speak for the team that, that, that would have been in existence uh, back in the 90s. However, the, the model and the type of person that we're looking for today are, are people who are professional sales, business development people who have multiple years of being in, in a world where they've driven high level sales in, uh, environments or been in, involved in high level sales. So the, the folks that we have on our team through using tools like LinkedIn, when we reach out to a CEO, the CEO can look at our experience and then determine whether or not they want to have a further discussion. So I, I think that that sort of tool enables people to, to see who they're actually gonna be speaking to and who they're being reached out to uh, by. Um, so that's 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 one thing. Um, depending on the size and the, the scope of the company, or uh, how important we feel that that company might be for our ecosystem here in New Brunswick, we will at times go to the premier's office and ask if they could do an 
an introductory, if they can reach out, can they help to support us in that conversation? Um, I would also say too, that there's many cases when we get through a sales cycle with the client that can take anywhere from 12 to 36 months from the first time we talk to somebody. And WestJet was a perfect example of that, although now with COVID, it's unfortunate that they've had to leave, but that's the, the nature of that industry right now, unfortunately. But nonetheless, from my first contact, which was through LinkedIn to the CEO of WestJet, to the time they landed, it was three years. And throughout that process, I leaned on executives at the senior level within government to help support that conversation by asking them to jump on the phone and have conversations. So uh, we're trying to use every possible tool that we can to win the business. In the end, the goal is win the business, whatever it takes. So in the old days, and you're going to hear that phrase a lot, I apologize, but that's the purpose of this one today. I'd say 95% of all the FDI or the investment attraction was out of Toronto. It might have been a multinational firm like ExxonMobil, but the decisions were being made by executives in Toronto. I think that's changing somewhat. I'd like to get your perspective on that. I just read uh, on your uh, LinkedIn about Tech Mahindra, the Indian firm that's uh, set up in New Brunswick. So what percentage of your leads and ultimate um, deals are coming out of other parts of Canada versus places like India and other jurisdictions further afield? So I would have said traditionally in the past, and I, when I say in the past, I'm talking of the last eight years, I'm thinking like two years ago. And before that, we would have seen the majority, 80% of our FDI come from Canada or the US. Uh, that would have been the bulk of our attention. Back I'd say 10 years ago, we saw um, a transition with our back office and we saw a decline here in the province with our back office support companies moving to the offshore, whether it be Philippines, India, wherever that might be, those lower, lower cost jurisdictions. All that to say is that a lot of those companies who went away are now starting to come back. And a lot of those companies that went away supported these new companies in these low-cost jurisdictions who are now seeing the value in being near shore. And we're seeing investment from them, for instance, like the Indian companies like Tech Mahindra, HCL, and a number of others that we're, we're continuing to get more and more attention from because they see the value in hiring a North American, more specifically a New Brunswicker, who is uh, known to be reliable, uh, we, we stay at our job for a long time. Our, the, the cost is, is, is reasonable here and uh, the infrastructure is here in place to, for them to get access to those markets. So it makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk to you a bit about export development. In the 90s, we had this whole crisis with Quebec and separation and the potential of breaking up Canada. So the federal government at the time spent a lot of focus on trying to show that we're better together as as provinces and territories. And there was a real, actually, Team Canada approach. It was called Team Canada. Hmm. And the premiers, uh, you know, and the, and the prime minister would actually get on a plane, one single plane, and they'd go to various countries around the world uh, and try to sell the country and, and the, you know, and the, ex- the expertise and opportunities in individual provinces. I don't believe that's the case today. You can you can let me know one way or the others. But is there a Team Canada approach, or are you basically sort of New Brunswick is basically doing its own 
thing when it comes to export development? And then based on your answer to that, what actually are you doing to try and grow the export uh, market for uh New Brunswick firms and industries these days? So I would say that uh, there's still a Team Canada approach, maybe not in exactly the same sense as how you described it, which means um, we are going around the world, all the premiers uh, um, trying to raise awareness of Team Canada. Uh, When we do travel for trade events, there's usually a Team Canada booth. um, And within that Team Canada booth, we all are there for the most part. Um, I would say there's a Team Atlantic um, that's working really, really hard through uh, Atiga to try and drive trade here into the Atlantic provinces. And I, I would also comment, too, that, that, that here in Atlantic Canada, working through ACOA and working with our, our, our partners in the feds, um, we've never been more aligned than we are right now. We work very closely together. Uh, we have very similar goals and, and outcomes that we're looking to achieve. So there's a lot of effort going uh, going on right now to, to ensure that we're all working together for a common goal. Does New Brunswick have our own mandate? Absolutely. Do we have our own desired outcomes? Absolutely. Are we trying to focus differently than we have in the past? Right now, yes. We want to become more laser focused. We want to work with individual companies one-on-one, understand what their goals are from an export standpoint. Where are they looking to export? Are they looking to export more? Understanding how they want to do that and then working with them one-on-one to help consult them and get them engaged to drive more opportunities, more leads into different markets. Now, having said that though, here in North America, we have the the USMCA and then we have CETA and then recently this week, the new announcement between uh, the UK and Canada. So moving forward again along the lines of being focused, we are going to focus on those markets. So those that's not to say we're not going to focus on other markets or do nothing in other markets, but if we're going to spend a great deal of our time trying to move the needle, then we need to spend time focused on very specific areas, on very specific companies who want to see uh, to have similar outcomes and goals that we do so that we can actually see growth. Sorry. That's our intent going forward. So. Yeah, so I, I just want to jump in a little bit because you, I think you know my thoughts around export development and i I think there's a there's a very strong relationship between fdi and exports so Mm -hmm. you you know we were trying for years going all the way back to the 90s to try and do more or or drive more export growth into say asia and then the biggest spike in export revenue came when uh the Birla group or whatever they're called came, bought the plant in Nakawick and, and elsewhere. And then you saw this big spike, hundreds of millions of dollars in pulp going to Asia to be produced into clothing and other, and other textile uh, uh, products in Asia. So boom, big export growth, diversification of exports. If you look at the call center industry or the back office industry, that became a $1.4 billion export industry. If you look at some of the mining projects, right? And so I just want to get your thoughts because I think sometimes when we do these export strategies, we think about how do we get the little guy, the little firm to export? Um, 
And if, and that's fine, there's, you know, we want more small exporters. It makes a lot of sense, but that needle is really hard to bend. I mean, if you look at the Stats Canada data, there's less exporters today from New Brunswick international exporters than there were 10 years ago. And there's less than there were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, so should an export strategy be focused on trying to find these big exporters, you know, we lost a smelter. We lost a ton of exports when we lost the smelter, right? Yeah. Or should the export strategy be focused on trying to help small exporters export? Or are you going to tell them we need to do both? Hmm. So within within um, OMB recently, we've gone through an exercise, I guess, I shouldn't say recently. It's been over the course of the last year coming up with what our strategy for export would look like. And there's been a great deal of time focusing on the types of companies that we have here in New Brunswick. And long story short is, is that our primary focus, and I'll say 75% of our time will be on the high impact exporters. So those are companies that are either exporting today or high have a propensity to, to, to export uh, who want to work with us. Um, and who are interested in those specific markets that we want to get into. So again, we're going to work very specifically with them, understand their needs for, for wanting to export, and then really work hard to, to drive the needle to either get them into new markets that maybe they aren't in today, or perhaps uh, work with them to get in, uh, sell more into the existing markets. And that means if we have to hustle more, whether it be through driving, uh, uh, an inside sales team to help them get more connections and in-market opportunities, we're going to do it. If we're going to work more diligently with the consulates and have a consulate strategy where we're reaching out to the consulates on a regular basis, because we're not like the big province of Quebec and Ontario who have physical people there, we're going to do things like that. The other thing we're going to look at too, David, is, is uh, and this is something that, that excites me, is recently in the U.S., the U.S. announced that they're going to be investing, I think, 300 plus million into the SMR uh, world. Here in Canada, we've got New Brunswick, we've got Ontario, we've got uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all exp expressing interest in the SMRs. You've got the UK. So the unique thing with New Brunswick is, is that we've had this culture of nuclear in the province. Currently today, we have uh, the supply chain has, uh, we have over 50% of the supply chain filled with companies that can help support that industry. So first and foremost, those 50 companies, to your, back to your point earlier about investment attraction and trade, so those 50% of supply chain companies here, we're going to work with them to hopefully help get them access to those markets that are saying they're going to invest in a big way in nuclear. We're also going to go out from an FDI standpoint and go, okay, well, 50% of the market that's not here or supply chain that's not here, where are we going to attract companies in to fill those gaps? Or do we work with existing New Brunswick companies to elevate them so that they can fill those gaps? So we're trying to be more strategic perhaps than we have in the past when it comes to real opportunities. And from my experience over the last eight years, when we focus on the opportunities at hand and we drive a team and support that with a team around it, we can actually have good outcomes. Yeah, so it's always the challenge, right? Because there's one school of thought that says if you've got a little pewter manufacturer in Minto, you know, um, maybe you should help them. Whereas other folks like me are saying, well, no, not that there's a problem helping an individual firm, but if you have an opportunity in SMRs or cybersecurity or some broader where you have synergy and where you can actually see maybe bigger bang for the buck, maybe you should, um, 
invest there. But I did. Uh, now that you've opened the SMR door, I want to jump in because I've read all those announcements too. Of course, Alberta wants in. The U.S. is putting a significant amount of money. We'll see what happens with Joe Biden. I hope that investment continues. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Boris Johnson in the U.K. has said that nuclear is part of their future too. So I'm excited about all of that because it's starting to raise awareness uh, of that industry. The fear, though, is that we get lost in the shuffle. We're just yeah. a little New Brunswick, right? And and I've had discussions with ARC and Moltex about this. This, you know, how do you... We don't need it all, right? We don't need the entire global market for nuclear, nuclear, the manufacture uh, and service uh, for the industry, but we want some of it here. And I worry that Ontario is going to take elbow their way in and take most of it, and Alberta is going to want some, and then the U.S. So I guess what's your thoughts on how a place like New Brunswick can carve out a little market in that area and make sure that we get some or considerable economic benefit from an opportunity like SMRs? At the end of the day, uh, we, we need to always be cautious that we don't try and bite off more than we can chew. Um, we know our strengths. Um, we should focus on our strengths and we shouldn't try to be more than we're not. Um, I think we have a real advantage here in the province with uh, those two companies that you talked about, having them here driving research and development helping to support the supply chain and augmenting the, augmenting the supply chain, working with First Nations communities and ensuring that we're uh, helping them to understand the potential opportunities for the future in terms of how they fit into that supply chain. And I think at the end of the day, if we can, in the end, um, again, leverage the talent base that we have here, leverage the infrastructure, leverage uh, the innovation that we have here. So we've got research happening on nuclear at our university. We've got the infrastructure from a grid standpoint here in the province, and we've got one of the most reliable in the world. We've been training talent for years, like engineers coming through universities here in New Brunswick and colleges. There's no question that we can supply the talent, drive the innovation, and support it with the infrastructure. As long as we don't get into this fighting match with Ontario, to, again, to try and be something that we're not, uh, we should be in a good position. If we try and get into that battle, there's a good chance that we'll we'll lose. So I think we've well positioned ourselves in terms of where we think we can play in this this area. And I believe that that the Fed is going to help support our ideas of where we think we fit. Yeah. Again, we don't need it all. I understand. You know, Ontario is going to get a big chunk of it, and. Probably Alberta as well. Saskatchewan will benefit from the mining and sale of their uh, uh, of their uranium, right? So they they don't necessarily need the manufacturing because they're going to be uh, getting a lot of economic value from the mining of uranium. Mm -hmm. So back to FDI for a minute. I, I apologize; these are all coming at you rapid fire, but that was the purpose today. So we could probably do a whole show on one of these, but but yeah. uh, we're going to go through them pretty quick. So. In the 90s, most almost all of the FDI focus was on what I would call greenfield investment. So they're not here today. You attract them. They come. They build a new building. You know, they hire all their staff. They might move a few staff from uh, outside the region. But for the most part, it's a completely greenfield operation. Very little uh, investment those days came by acquisition or merger or some other way. I would say in the last 10 years or so that particularly around tech industries, that's become one of the primary ways for companies to invest in communities. If you think about Google 
when they originally moved into Canada, uh, they bought a firm in uh, Waterloo. Uh, and there's many, many examples, of course, even in New Brunswick. Salesforce is here. IBM is here. Um, via uh, acquisition, uh, we just saw this massive acquisition of Verifin in St. John's for 2.5 billion US by NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. So the norm, the uh, you know the the concern, of course, is that well, if the locus of control shifts to the U.S., then over time they might wind down their operation in New Brunswick or whatever. But on the other hand, it's an incredible opportunity because the money comes in, right? It's it monetizes the the wealth and the value uh, in these companies. So where are you on this issue of uh, FDI totally as greenfield, or should we actually be trying to attract firms that want to acquire? talented New Brunswick firms and then grow their base uh, here in the province? So I think, I think it's a bit of both. So I, I, I look at what was created in the contact center industry now more referred to as the business service center industry. And if you look at those industries nowadays, those are less greenfield or more brownfield than, than they would have been back, back in the day. Um, we've seen tremendous growth within all of those companies. And if, if you were to pick Axon as one example, they originally came here with, I think it was 70 to 90 people uh, working in their North American call center. Now they're upwards six, 700 people and they provide different levels of service within the organization for North America. And it's not just a call center anymore. I believe there's maybe 60 people there who are actually in their call center. So that looks a whole lot different than it used to. And for me, that those are the low-hanging fruit. So how can we in this world today work with the 20,000 people that are currently here in the province today delivering services for global companies, and how do we help them grow? So from our standpoint, our focus is um, focus on 20% of your high-paying customers, right? So you get more results from something that you already have than something you don't. So the greater wins are within them. So I would say that that's the case for the business service industry. How do we how do we take the business service industry from 1.4 billion to 2 billion over the course of the next four to five years? So that is is intriguing to us. I would also say too, we, we need the talent to do that. So we have a very aggressive immigration uh, plan and um, that is something that uh, is near and dear to your heart. And I know you had a, a great deal of involvement early on with that. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Having said that, though, there's a number of other industries, manufacturing, uh, ICT, et cetera, um, where we would see some greenfield opportunities on the manufacturing side. Um, and that is, is, is really where some of our focus is going into now with the Premier's recent announcement uh, over the last few months about food security. So how do we drive more food security here in the province? And food security can mean a lot of things, but from an FDI standpoint, that means how do we attract more investment into indoor growing? Uh, we've had over the course of the last five, six years, um, per capita actually, we're the second largest indoor growing of cannabis in Canada, only behind BC. So we've got the supply chain, We've got the brains and the power, the infrastructure. All of these things have been built out to help support vertical indoor growing. So why can't we look at how we grow indoor vegetables? So those are the aspects of how we're looking at all the different sectors and the areas of strength that we have to, to tra- try and grow uh, greenfield or brownfield opportunities. 
I'd love to see if there's an opportunity to, to grow indoor blueberries, <laughs> right? Because the, the, the season for live blueberries is so short for fresh, for fresh blueberries is so short, right? And then we sort of freeze them all and then they're fine frozen, but they're not nearly as good. It would be interesting to see instead of bringing those great big plum sized blueberries from the u.s in the in the middle of the winter in the off season be great to see if we could do that here but that's a little bit off topic so i wanted to ask you about financial uh or tax incentives so i know your former ceo Stephen lund this was always a bone of contention for him um you know that that the amount of money provided to firms was a relatively small amount and you needed to do it because other jurisdictions were doing it I, I look at it at a, at a macro level. If you look at the Stats Canada data on subsidization of firms so that they, they're getting better and better at tracking subsidies across the country uh, in all industries. New Brunswick is really, for the most part, at the bottom of the list. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the last, uh, the latest data we have is for 2017. If you look at the eight years from 2010 to 2017, you know, there's been on a per capita basis, there's been about five times more government subsidies and that data doesn't break out provincial or federal, but that just on top overall, there's been five times as much money flowing into um, Prince Edward Island as New Brunswick and most other provinces. I think it's two times higher in Nova Scotia. And some of that, there's a, there's a conversation to be had there because some of that is agriculture. That's a sector that gets subsidized a lot. But the question for you would be, what is the role of financial or tax incentives today? Have we completely lost interest in that in the province? And if we have, how come other provinces, again, federal, provincial combined, tend to be spending a lot more to subsidize industry than we do here? And should we see that as a badge of honor or should we actually be thinking that that's a problem and we need to start being competitive in terms of the amount of uh, support we're providing to try and grow important industries in the province? So in the last 10 years, for which we've been keeping data on the number of opportunities that we've brought in terms of FDI, and this is FDI, when I talk about the deals that we're capturing data on are the ones that we actually had an impact on. So they're the ones that we actually provided incentive. Uh, over the last 10 years, on average, it's been 22 per year. Um, so we've invested in 22 on average over the last 10 years per year. So with all of those, none of them would have come to New Brunswick had we not provided some sort of incentive. Um, with all of those, we would have been faced with competition, whether it be in Quebec, primarily as our, as our primary competition for the most part, um, because of the bilingual aspect of, of what most of our clients are looking for. And that is one of the largest advantages that we have here in New Brunswick is, is the fact that we are uh, bilingual. So it, uh, it certainly is not something that we're moving away from. The current government has not, uh, uh, has not asked us not to give out incentives. As a matter of fact, they're encouraging us to do that when it's the right opportunity. I would suggest that uh, our biggest challenge, and, and first and foremost, so let me just back up slightly. So when we talk to a client, they're off, we're often in competition. And it's usually Atlantic Canada, and then Ontario, Quebec, Quebec being before Ontario, and then the US in some cases, depending on where the firm is coming from, it's mostly international, that would then encompass the US. But typically, the majority of the investment that we have coming our way, uh, like I said earlier, 
is, is than 80% from Canada and the US. That's changing a little bit. Nonetheless, the first thing they always say to us is, do you have the people? That's the first thing. Second thing, they say, do you have the infrastructure? How, how, how am I going to get my product to market? Whether it be a service by the phone or whether it be a manufacturing, whatever the widget might be. Then the third thing is cost. And then the fourth thing would be innovation. So the stickiness of innovation helps them to continue to stay here. It's important. That's an important part. But at the end of the day, it's those first three ones that really pay, play a key part in their decision. Hence the reason why I feel like we are certainly punching above our weight. We, we, cannot, we cannot have the incentives there to help entice companies, but because of the jurisdiction that we operate in, we're a lower cost jurisdiction. Um, we're not the lowest cost, we're a lower cost. Um, that's important. And that helps us when we don't subsidize as, as, as big as some of the other jurisdictions. So we can get away with it because of the way we are set up here today with our lower cost. So lower cost real estate, lower cost in terms of wages when compared to Toronto or Montreal or Alberta, et cetera. So it's critically important. However, if, if we didn't have low cost energy rates, say for instance, David, then it would make it difficult for manufacturing to be here. Yeah, we're going to come back to manufacturing in a second, but I want to ask you, and you can feel free to skirt this answer because it's a direct question, but there was a study done by the University of Calgary came out recently suggesting that, you know, places like New Brunswick are getting a lot more uh, transfer money, right? Equalization and other types of, but even old age security and the, the other direct federal transfers to individuals. So I went back to that gentleman who did the study you know, through Herb Emery. And I said, yeah, but it looks like the federal transfers for economic development are going down year over year, certainly going down as a share of the total expenditures or their, to their total budget, going back even back to the 90s or earlier. And he came back and he said, yeah, it looks like the federal government is spending a lot less money in New Brunswick these days um, than they did in the 80s and 90s by any measure, in real dollars, in as a share of budget, however you want to look at that. So it looks like they're spending more money on income transfers for individuals and government and less on economic development. So I, I suspect you have a great relationship with the COA. I suspect you have a great relationship with the federal government. But it, you know, when the feds are quick to put hundreds of millions of dollars into the auto industry, every single plant, when they put 350 million into the offshore of Newfoundland and Labrador, where, you know, when they set up an ocean supercluster in, in the, you know, in St. John's slash Halifax, where is the federal government the partner you need it to be as we try to grow this economy, get it back to growth? Are they pumping in money? Are they going to support the SMR cluster? Are they supporting the cybersecurity cluster? Where's the federal government these days? And again, I, 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 I anticipate your answer will be very politi politically correct, and I appreciate that because you have to work with this, you have to work with the feds. But I do want to get your opinion on that because I think it's an issue that's concerning me that the federal government needs to be here for the sectors and opportunities that we see as having potential. They need to step up and invest more. But uh, what are your thoughts? Um, so these are big boats to move, and it takes time. And I would say that. Over the last five to seven years since I've been around, um, alignment 
is critical. And I would say leading up to, I'd say before five years ago, um, the province of New Brunswick and the federal government haven't been well aligned in terms of priorities. And not, not to use this as an excuse, but I would just, I have to think that with the consistent changing of governments, it was hard to get any momentum at the federal level. So you have this constant change of government here in New Brunswick, which has, and, and people need to understand this, like it, it has incredibly damaged our ability to have consistency and messaging at the federal level. So recently in the last five years, the feds have come back to us over and over again and said, we need to understand what your priorities are. So stop, stop asking us for stuff, be more focused and once you're focused, then come back to us and say, this is where we want to move the needle. So all that to say, I'm feeling incredibly confident that we are more aligned now than we have ever been. And that we're also picking, we'll call it some, some winners, some, some, some things that we have some opportunities to, to, to move the needle. So for example, you mentioned the, the ocean supercluster. Well, despite the fact that we lost the ocean supercluster bid, we also went at it uh, with our own proposal for Smart Grid on the supercluster endeavor. And as a result of that, um, immediately right after the, the superclusters were awarded, we actually were lucky enough to take our proposal that we had submitted. We went to the federal government and we said, this is a focus for New Brunswick. We see there's tremendous value in this. Private sector was right behind us, with us. And we were actually able to bring private sector investment along with government investment to drive five projects with some of our partners here in the province of New Brunswick around Smart Grid. Not only did that project happen, and that was a total of, I believe, about $110 million of investment in total when all five projects are done. Uh, and that's over a course of a four-year period. So we're about halfway through that. Uh, I would also say, too, in St. John with St. John Energy, they also went forward and they've got a roughly, I think it's close to $20 million in investment now around their smart grid initiative. So that's just one example of how we, by choosing an industry or a segment where we're going to focus and working with the feds, that we've, we've seen success. The other one, uh, although we haven't seen investment from the feds yet, but all indications are that, that, that they're supportive of this, is on the SMRs. So the more aligned we become and the more focused we become, the feds have more confidence in our ability to deliver and they have been incredibly supportive of that. And they're showing that to us when we when we do pick it. So I'm incredibly hopeful that um, that things are moving in the right direction. So that makes me feel somewhat optimistic, too, Steve, because I, I tend to agree with what you just said, that, it, you know, the reason Prince Edward Island has received so much funding has because they've been in front of the feds with asks, right? With specific asks that have aligned with what the feds, uh, you know, see as, as areas they want to fund, right? So I think there's, there is some argument to be made that New Brunswick hasn't been clear and consistent with what they want from the feds, right? Mm -hmm. So the feds come out with clean tech funding programs and we say, well, we're not in the clean tech business. Okay, maybe we're not in the clean tech business, but we do need to be clear about what we want and try to align that as much as possible with their offering. So I think that that makes me feel quite optimistic. But I do want to come back to the question about manufacturing. So I have a lot of conversations with Herb Emery. 
He's the head of the JDI roundtable on manufacturing. Um, you know, there, we've had some success there. There's no doubt. We've had a number of close, though, as well, a number of manufacturers. I still think of Allison McCain's mantra that he told me that you can either locate your manufacturing near your raw materials or you can locate it near your end markets, but not in between. In other words, you can't do pizza manufacturing in New Brunswick because the cheese, the industrial cheese is not here. You got to bring it in and your markets aren't here. Your markets are Toronto, Montreal or whatever. Uh, so you seemed pretty optimistic earlier when you raised manufacturing. Do you, I don't, I can't recall a lot of manufacturing investment in recent years. Are you, do you think there's potential for manufacturing in New Brunswick? And uh, um, I'd like your thoughts on that. So I think there's potential to work with the um, with the existing organizations that are here and help to elevate them. So when we talk about SMRs as an example and hopeful to that, that we'll see investment there, those manufacturing organizations that are within that supply chain, how, how do we continue to help get them to the next level? How do we help them grow? And that's that's going to be a focus for us. Like. We don't want to lose sight of that. If that's a prime opportunity and that's where we see a fit, then let's go after it. Let's go after it hard. And let's work with those 20 companies that are in New Brunswick so that we can help to elevate them. Um, are there other types of opportunities? I would say that, David, again, it, it boils back to uh, companies say on the manufacturing side, it's a little bit different, but it, it's people, infrastructure cost. So if you look at Irving's, McCain's, Cook's, all, all of them. So their primary input costs, and, and I'm no expert at this, but it's, it's usually people and energy for those, those big ones. So if our energy costs change drastically, then they struggle and we'll struggle to attract investment, especially on the manufacturing side, because those are the two costs that, that usually hit them the hardest. So the other one though is infrastructure. So again, to your point, like Alison Kane said, it's, it's either here or close to market. Well, there's been some recent changes here in the province around how we get products to market. So we've got the expansion of the port here in St. John. We have CP rail who's made some investments working with MB Southern railway. Uh, we've got new access into markets. We've got the Southern market uh, with New York and Boston and access to, to ports there. Um, now being uh, there, there are long waits to get into those ports. So does New Brunswick now because of the CP rail connection and that infrastructure that's now in place, does that make us more attractive? If that makes us more attractive, now that makes us even more attractive to, to, to lines, uh, shipping lines who want to come in to, to, to go to Europe and et cetera. So for me, it's all about, we have the talent, the talent. And when I say we have the talent, we, we are lacking the talent, but we're certainly able to train the talent. We just need to get the people and our young folks into the stream to understand that there's real opportunity here. So we've got some work to do there. Um, the infrastructure we're working on, it's getting there. So I'm optimistic that with infrastructure, that will help to support that. And based on um, the way we're moving towards energy, energy supply, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, we're always going to have increases in energy, but I don't see it being drastic. So if we can maintain those three things as the primary uh, areas of focus, I think we have an opportunity to continue to see our company succeed, but I think we also have an opportunity to attract some as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the workforce because I think that is one of the real challenges with manufacturing, um, you know, is finding 
people that want to work in a manufacturing environment, whether it's an assembly line or in a technician role uh, or whatever. I think it's, um, if you look at the national data, increasingly immigrants are making up a larger share of the manufacturing jobs with some exceptions. So auto manufacturing tends to still be um, um, folks mostly born in Canada. So I think we have to see that alignment. If we want to grow manufacturing, we have to make sure we're bringing in you know, the talent to work there, as well as trying to encourage New Brunswickers that have an interest in working in manufacturing to take, uh, you know, to take up careers in manufacturing. But I do think moving forward, that's one of those sectors, along with transportation and other sectors, that we're going to have to follow the national trend and be attracting uh, folks to work uh, in those sectors. I want to shift quickly to people attraction. Um, You mentioned that earlier. Uh, I'd like to know, I can tell you right now in the 90s, we weren't doing anything. We weren't doing nothing to attract people. Now, when Bernard Lord came in, this was actually the early 2000s. He, he got elected in 1999. The first census after he got elected was the 2001 census, and that showed that New Brunswick had lost population for the first time since they've been doing censuses in Canada. So we actually had less people in the province in 2001 uh, compared to 1996. And of course, that set off alarm bells. They set up a population growth secretariat. Everybody sort of ran around and said, well, maybe we start should start getting interested in people attraction. So, but before that, before 2001, I would actually have discussions with officials in the, gov- in the premier's office saying, look, it would be great if more New Brunswickers would leave. We have high unemployment. You know, we can never say this publicly, but, you know, maybe a few more of them should move to Alberta. So that changed dramatically, obviously, in the 2000s. And by now, in 2020, you know, if you do a survey, the Conseil Economique surveys their membership, other other business groups survey their members, and the lack of talent tends to be the number one issue on everybody's mind. So it's good to see that government is taking that seriously now. I'm very encouraged by the uh, immigration numbers in recent years, um, but I'd like to find out, and, and our listeners would be interested, I think, in what you're doing to proactively attract people. Because ideally, you'd almost treat people attraction the way you treat investment attraction, right? What's the value proposition? Where are your markets? Do you have you know well well healed uh, salespeople going out and actually promoting the province and so on? So I understand the parallels aren't perfect. Because you don't want to bring somebody in that doesn't actually have an economic opportunity here, but you brought them in because you were such a great salesperson. But at the end of the day, though, I do think we need to be very deliberate about getting out into foreign markets and trying to find people that have the interest and the aptitudes and the skills to work the jobs on offer and to help us grow our labor market and our economy in the years ahead. So what is ONB doing and your partners pedal and otherwise to um, to try and bring people and attract people with the skills and interest and aptitude to work the jobs on offer here in New Brunswick. So there's a lot of stuff that's happening. And uh, as I'm sure you are aware, population growth has just joined OMB. So now um, we are working incredibly closely with them and they're going to become more part of our everyday activities and how we go to market. I would say that um, in the past, they have not been a traditional sales environment and they've not thought of it that way. Uh, however, though, we've, we've got some work to do and, and we're working towards it. And they've had success uh, uh, over the course of the last 
couple of years because of the focus on it. And the fact that government just comes out and says that, that we're going to focus on this, we're going to do this, inherently attracts people to want to know, ask questions, that sort of thing. So, but to your point though, how are we going to get more proactive in our approach? So the ways we're getting more proactive in our approach is through a, a, a number of different ways. So for example, um, I was involved in, a, in an attraction uh, opportunity a number of years ago called RevJet. We brought RevJet to the province. There's a California-based company with a, a large team of developers in the Ukraine. Um, we attracted them to New Brunswick and we did what we call lift and shift. So we brought a team of 20 here to St. John, New Brunswick, and they were all Ukrainians. So they came with their, their husbands, wives, and kids, and uh, they came to New Brunswick. So there's there's that focus now, and we've actually put that into our KPIs. So like any sales organization out there in the private sector, we are operating very much the same way. So our team has an objective to make sure that every deal um, has some sort of component to it of a new resident to New Brunswick. And we want to make sure that that continues. And we're working with our clients to help incent them or to help uh, or to help them just in general, um, make sure that a certain portion of their hires are new residents to New Brunswick. And we're writing that right into the deals. So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect of it is as well, like I said, we're getting very uh, close with our, our friends and folks at Pedal. And my team, part of my team is also what we call the client engagement team. So OMB is responsible for creating the need for talent. Pedal's job is to fulfill that need of talent. So my client engagement team works with the clients to ensure that the client understands all the different avenues that they have access to, to get access to talent, whether it be through immigration, whether it be through job fairs, whether it be supporting them through just uh, getting them integrated into the local uh, community and economy, like that concierge service that, that you would hope for in a world-class uh, organization that helps a company come in and feel like they're, they're day one, they're part of the landscape. So that team does that. So we're far more proactive in those efforts. The other thing too is, is that um, we're also focusing on areas where we think we're gonna get the talent and then retain it. So one of the biggest challenges that we've had in the past is we get immigrants here and then within a year or two, once they get their permanent residency, they're gone. So one of the biggest things that I have found, and, and RevJet was a great example of this, and I didn't expect it, but the folks on the team said, what's the culture in, in New Brunswick? What is there cultural aspects of you, the Ukrainian culture that exists there? So what that said loud and clear to me is, is that they want to move to a place that is a lot like home. Um, and the more that we can do on that side of things to make them feel like it's more like home and the more we focus on areas of the world that are similar to us or are similar in culture in certain areas, the more success we'll have. And those are the kind of the areas of how we're trying to move things forward. We haven't got it all, all um, in stone yet, but we're working towards that for the future. So. It's good news. So I wanted to pivot now in the last few minutes that we have left and ask you about some very tactical things that are, you know, that we do in economic development to try and grow the economy. So in the 90s, you know, we would do a lot of 
let's say, advertising and trade magazines. So if you wanted to attract plastics manufacturers, you'd run an ad in a plastics manufacturing um, magazine, or you'd try to find some other targeted, you know, some, some of the jurisdictions would even put ads like in the onboard en route. And that's and hoping that the CEOs would read their en route magazine and Hey, we saw New Brunswick, maybe we should move there. So there was a lot of that advertising uh, sort of in physical magazines back then. There was a lot of attending industry specific trade shows Um uh, and then there was a lot of sort of just direct sales efforts, as I mentioned earlier, with with the premier. How has that changed? Has the internet changed that? Are you, if I were to look at your budget, are you still spending a lot of money trying to do advertising? Uh, and if so, is it more online advertising or have you moved completely off advertising? I'd be very curious, and I think the listeners would find it interesting to see how you're actually doing, how you're actually getting the name of New Brunswick out there. And promoting it these days in a in a world of uh, heavy competition from other jurisdictions. So I would say that our approach is 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 a lot different than maybe the old days when it came to putting uh, things in magazines or articles and newspapers and things of that nature. Where we have seen a lot of success is uh, joining organizations where you got direct access to decision makers. So that's one approach. So we've, we're part of an organization. They hold, uh, they host four events a year. We participate in those four events. And at those events last year, for instance, I met the CIO of Facebook. Um, I've met uh, certain leaders of certain countries. So we're putting ourselves in front of people who are actually able to make real decisions. So. That is where we're investing our money when it comes to marketing New Brunswick, because getting in front of decision makers is, is a higher likelihood than, than uh, the shotgun approach. However, having said that, we have seen success. When you think about immigration, Moncton has benefited in many ways, along with Fredericton and St. John to some degree, New Brunswick as a whole, I guess, too. Um, when you're ranked the number one city to live in or the friendliest city to live in, those things, those sorts of things uh, say an awful lot to the individual, not so much the company. So that sort of effort continues to try and drive that sort of activity more towards the individual uh, on a broader scale. Whereas when it comes to an individual company or a company that we're targeting, it's more driving towards a one-on-one -on -one experience face-to-face or virtually nowadays, obviously, um, with a leader of a, of a company. But are you doing any of that third-party validation? So we used to pay a company out of Princeton, John Boyd and Associates or something like that, and he would do a very high-level comparative cost analysis, charges 50 grand, uh, and then we would run around North America saying, hey, look, he showed that New Brunswick was the cheapest place in North America to do business. So we'd leverage his brand, mm. um, you know, and there were other efforts too, right, to try and get sort of third parties. If you think about the KPMG uh, competitive alternatives re report, which I think was discontinued a few years ago, that was another, that was a national effort to show that Canada is, you know, one of the most cost-effective locations. And then you use the credibility of KPMG to say, hey, don't, don't listen to us, you know, look at KPMG. Are you, do you pay for any of these third-party uh, studies or analyses anymore to get 
to validate your claims or, or is that something that's fallen out of favor? Um, I wouldn't say it's completely fallen out of favor. So we've in the past leveraged the KPMG one quite a bit. Um, obviously, it's been a few years since that was published. I know currently we're in conversations with the federal government. And I believe that through Investment uh, Canada, they're looking at uh, a partnership right now doing something similar again. I, I believe they have seen value in that on the global stage from a Canadian standpoint. And we've certainly taken advantage of it and, and leveraged it. I would say in the last four years, uh, now <laughs> seeing um, not being able to leverage the KPMG report the same way we did early on in, in early days, uh, people really don't ask about it, to be honest with you, David. And uh, I mean, to go back to, to what you asked, though, too, is do we sometimes, yes, try and validate depending on specific sector? However, though, we've the way we're selling now is, is that we've got these strong sectors that exist and they're here for a reason. And then because we're talking to individual companies, they have to validate their, their, their financial investment into the province anyway. So we have to dig into the nitty gritty of it anyway and show them our energy costs, our people costs. Like, so we're providing all of that information to them anyway. And then in the end, I would also say too that 80 to 90%, probably more like 90% of the time, like we don't lose the business because of the way we're, we're approaching this. So because of our proactive approach, because we're getting in front of the decision maker, because we're proactively engaging with these companies, but we're also we're also finding specific niches within their organizations that make sense for New Brunswick. Cost, although important, it's third. If we can get those first two things checked off, people and the infrastructure, the cost part of it is not as loud. It's not as noisy anymore. But even on the people attraction front, you, you know, there's been forever the money sense rankings and McLean's does some rankings and there's other rankings and it always ends up like Burlington, Ontario is the best place in the world to live. Right. Mm. Which makes, you know, it, it, de it obviously depends on how you weight factors. Right. So the hour commute to work every day from Burlington to the GTA or whatever is, you know, if you put more of a weight on short commute times, then probably St. John or Bathurst looks a lot better. So I, I worry a little bit about that. If people are doing internet searches that they're coming up with these national studies done by journalists and people out of Ontario that coincidentally find that Ontario is the best place in the world to live. Now I have a lot of clients in Ontario. There's lots of great cities and towns in Ontario, but I, I do worry a bit that we're losing the generic battle. Although I totally agree with you, once they get here, once they get a chance to interact with your people, once they see the data that you provide them, mm -hmm. I think that's a much more powerful case because that's specific to them, whether it's the person looking to move here or the business looking to move here. Mm -hmm. But when they're doing that first level analysis, like I'm thinking about Canada and I'm Googling Canada, you know, I think we're losing some of that initial, um, initial battle and i think it's because some of this some of this you know if you do just do a general search on where to live in canada we're not necessarily scoring as high as i'd like to see us now again as you in, insinuated earlier on some things you know occasionally you'll read that moncton has the best housing costs in canada and somebody else has the lowest crime rate in canada or whatever and that's exactly the kinds of stuff i'm talking about but maybe we need a little more proactivity to say hey 
you know, when, when somebody does that Google search up comes New Brunswick. Yeah. So you're not wrong. Like we certainly don't have anybody knocking down our doors to want to come to New Brunswick. The, the leads that we get are if, if we get a hundred leads, I would say less than 10 of those came to us. Those hundred leads, the 90 are ones that we created. So you're not, you're not entirely wrong when you say that, could we do more? But the other side of it too is, is that I've seen some of the leads that come in and they're not always what we want anyway. So but yeah, yeah, no, that's point, right. What are, we, what are we missing too? So yep. going out and deciding who you want to attract and, and being very deliberate about that, I think is the better way. A lot of times, and I do remember this from the nineties, there'd be firms sort of shopping high risk projects, looking for large incentives. Right. And of course that really never, um, really New Brunswick didn't play on that space back then. And I'm sure they don't today. I've got one last question for you. I've really appreciated your time, but this, and it's another sort of technology related question because I've been seeing a number of ads now for these investment lead generation services. And there's a lot of them. They've been around. They actually, they were around in the nineties too, in a much more rudimentary way. But now they're talking about using AI, artificial intelligence, and using all these new tools um, to highly target economic development leads to your specific jurisdiction. Do you, you, A, do you use those types of services, and B, are they effective, or do you just roll your eyes kind of like I do? Because I'm not sure how you could ever really, other than provide maybe a streamlined approach to high-level leads, how could they ever even with artificial intelligence, how could they ever really map high value leads to your jurisdiction? But what's your experience with those lead generation services? So we are currently working with one lead generation company. They're a New Brunswick based company, but the attitude and approach that we've taken is for me within our sales team, I want to build in resiliency. So at the end of the day, we have changes with people. We have changes with focus. We have all of these sorts of things. So, what inside sales does for us is it builds in that resiliency. However, though, it's a real person doing a real activity. It's not artificial intelligence blasting stuff out to everybody and then hope that something comes into the funnel. Ours is far more strategic. We have focus areas on cyber, energy, uh, digital health, agri-tech, advanced manufacturing, oceans, et cetera, BSEs, ICT. And what we do is we say, okay, we develop lists, we develop the lists of companies that we want to attract here. And then we unleash the inside sales team to then start reaching out to decision makers within those organizations using uh, LinkedIn and other, uh, other tools that can help decision makers validate who is actually reaching out to them versus some sort of artificial intelligence. So my answer to your question is, do we use it? Yes. Do we have success? We have tremendous success. And, um, would we use one of these ones that um, says that they can make 10,000 contacts, uh, get us 100 leads? No, we wouldn't because it's not personal. It, it's, it's not getting to the right decision maker. And the outcomes are, are never what they say they're going to be. Whereas right now we're driving. Uh, I can tell you with the company that we've worked, been working with for the last month and a half. And again, they're a New Brunswick company. They've driven... Uh, four to 500 contacts for us, which have resulted in 20 to 30 meetings, which is hopefully going to result into 10 opportunities. So that's how we're tracking it. 
Um, just so you use them for kind of a, a first level triage. screen against criteria that you give them, but you can't expect these agencies to actually do the on the ground pre-screening, actually calling firms or finding other ways to give you a hot lead. Uh, you do that piece yourself, the kind of turning a, a, a warm or potential into a hot lead that's done by your, your team. Yeah. So what we do is we've provided them with a list. We've provi provided them with, uh, uh, with an elevator pitch. We've educated them a little bit on the aspects and value props of the province. They open the door for us. And then we walk in with a, a warm, comfortable lead that hopefully we can take to an opportunity. Steve, I really appreciate you talking with us today. This has been very helpful. Again, I suspect on every one of those questions, we could have done a full show. So I appreciate your patience trying to handle all of these issues. But I did want to get a good sense of how things have changed. And I think we've done that uh, with our conversation today. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. I hope it was valuable for anyone who's going to be listening. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. If anybody has any questions, you know where to find me. Happy to talk about this all day long because anything that's going to drive our province for the future, uh, it's exciting. Uh, we need to be positive about it and, and we all need to be in this together because it's, it's, it's our province. Thanks, David. Thanks, Steve. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.